Section 31 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Third part of Chapter 7. Pere Bru sat with his head bowed, waiting. He was bothered by the napkin that was on the plate before him. Finally he lifted it off and placed it gently on the edge of the table, not thinking to spread it over his knees. Now at last Gervaise served the vermicelli soup. The guests were taking up their spoons when Virginie remarked that Coupeau had disappeared. He had perhaps returned to Pere Colombe's. This time the company got angry. So much the worse— one would not run after him. He could stay in the street if he was not hungry. And as the spoons touched the bottom of the plates, Coupeau reappeared, with two pots of flowers, one under each arm, a stock and a balsam. They all clapped their hands. He gallantly placed the pots, one on the right, the other on the left of Gervaise's glass. Then, bending over and kissing her, he said, "'I had forgotten you, my lamb, but in spite of that we love each other all the same.' especially on such a day as this. "'Monsieur Coupeau's very nice this evening,' murmured Clemence in Boche's ear. "'He's got just what he required, sufficient to make him amiable.' The good behaviour of the master of the house restored the gaiety of the proceedings, which at one moment had been compromised. Gervaise, once more at her ease, was all smiles again. The guests finished their soup, then the bottles circulated, and they drank their first glass of wine, just a drop, pure, to wash down the vermicelli. One could hear the children quarrelling in the next room. There were Etienne, Pauline, Nana, and little Victor Fauconnier. It had been decided to lay a table for the four of them, and they had been told to be very good. That squint-eyed Augustine, who had to look after the stove, was to eat off her knees. "'Mamma, mamma! suddenly screamed Nana. "'Augustine is dipping her bread in the Dutch oven!' The laundress hastened there and caught the squint-eyed one in the act of burning her throat in her attempt to swallow, without loss of time, a slice of bread soaked in boiling goose-fat. She boxed her ears when the young monkey called out that it was not true. When, after the boiled beef, the stewed veal appeared, served in a salad-bowl, as they did not have a dish large enough— the party greeted it with a laugh. "'It's become serious,' declared Poisson, who seldom spoke. It was half-past seven. They had closed the shop-door so as not to be spied upon by the whole neighbourhood. The little clockmaker opposite especially was opening his eyes to their full size, and seemed to take the pieces from their mouths with such a gluttonous look that it almost prevented them from eating.' The curtains hung before the windows, admitted a great white uniform light, which bathed the entire table with its symmetrical arrangements of knives and forks, and its pots of flowers, enveloped in tall collars of white paper, and this pale fading light, this slowly approaching dusk, gave to the party somewhat of an air of distinction. Virginie looked round the closed apartment hung with muslin, and with a happy criticism declared it to be very cosy. Whenever a card passed in the street, the glasses jingled together on the tablecloth, and the ladies were obliged to shout as loud as the men. 
but there was not much conversation. They all behaved very respectably and were very attentive to each other. Coupeau alone wore a blouse, because, as he said, one need not stand on ceremony with friends, and besides which the blouse was the workman's garb of honour. The ladies, laced up in their bodices, wore their hair in plaits, greasy with pomatum, in which the daylight was reflected, whilst the gentlemen, sitting at a distance from the table, swelled out their chests and kept their elbows wide apart for fear of staining their frock-coats. Ah, oh, thunder! What a hole they were making in the stewed veal! If they spoke little, they were chewing in earnest. The salad bowl was becoming emptier and emptier with a spoon stuck in the midst of the thick sauce, a good yellow sauce which quivered like a jelly. They fished pieces of veal out of it, and seemed as though they would never come to the end. The salad bowl journeyed from hand to hand, and faces bent over it as forks picked out the mushrooms. The long loaves, standing against the wall behind the guests, appeared to melt away. Between the mouthfuls one could hear the sound of glasses being replaced on the table. The sauce was a trifle too salty. It required four bottles of wine to drown that blessed stewed veal, which went down like cream, but which afterwards lit up a regular conflagration in one's stomach. And before one had time to take a breath, the pig's back in the middle of a deep dish surrounded by big round potatoes, arrived in the midst of a cloud of smoke. There was one general cry. By Jove! It was just the thing. Everyone liked it. They would do it justice. And they followed the dish with a side glance as they wiped their knives on their bread, so as to be in readiness. Then, as soon as they were helped, they nudged one another and spoke with their mouths full. It was just like butter, something sweet and solid which one could feel run through one's guts right down into one's boots. The potatoes were like sugar. It was not a bit salty, only, just on account of the potatoes, it required a wetting every few minutes. Four more bottles were placed on the table. The plates were wiped so clean that they also served for the green peas and bacon. Oh, vegetables were of no consequence. They playfully gulped them down in spoonfuls. The best part of the dish was the small pieces of bacon, just nicely grilled and smelling like horse's hoof. Two bottles were sufficient for them. Mama, mama, called out Nana suddenly. Augustine's putting a finger in my plate. Don't bother me. Give her a slap, replied Gervaise in the act of stuffing herself with green peas. At the children's table in the back room, Nana was playing the role of the lady of the house, sitting next to Victor and putting her brother Etienne besides Pauline so they could play house, pretending they were two married couples. Nana had served her guests very politely at first, but now she had given way to her passion for grilled bacon, trying to keep every piece for herself. While Augustine was prowling around the children's table, she would grab the bits of bacon under the pretext of dividing them amongst the children. Nana was so furious that she bit Augustine on the wrist. "'Ah, you know,' murmured Augustine, "'I'll tell your mother that after the veal you asked Victor to kiss you.' But all became quiet again, as Gervaise and Mother Coupeau came in to get the goose. The guests at the big table were leaning back in their chairs, taking a breather, the men had unbuttoned their waistcoats, the ladies were wiping their faces with their napkins. The repast was, so to say, interrupted. 
Only one or two persons, unable to keep their jaws still, continued to swallow large mouthfuls of bread without even knowing that they were doing so. The others were waiting and allowing their food to settle while waiting for the main course. Night was slowly coming on. A dirty ash-gray light was gathering behind the curtains. When Augustine brought two lamps and placed one at each end of the table, the general disorder became apparent in the bright glare. The greasy forks and plates, the tablecloth stained with wine and covered with crumbs. A strong stifling odor pervaded the room. Certain warm fumes, however, attracted all the noses in the direction of the kitchen. "'Can I help you?' cried Virginie. She left her chair and passed into the inner room. All the women followed one by one. They surrounded the Dutch oven and watched with profound interest as Gervaise and Mother Coupeau tried to pull the bird out. Then a clamour arose, in the midst of which one could distinguish the shrill voices and the joyful leaps of the children, and there was a triumphal entry. Gervaise carried the goose, her arms stiff and her perspiring face expanded in one broad silent laugh. The women walked behind her, laughing in the same way, whilst Nana, right at the end, raised herself up to see, her eyes open to their full extent. When the enormous golden goose streaming with gravy was on the table, they did not attack it at once. It was a wonder, a respectful wonderment, which for a moment left everyone speechless. They drew one another's attention to it with winks and nods of the head. Golly, what a bird! That one didn't get fat by licking the walls, I'll bet, said Bosch. Then they entered into details respecting the bird. Gervaise gave the facts. It was the best she could get at the poulterers in the Faubourg Poissonnier. It weighed twelve and a half pounds on the scales at the charcoal dealers. They had burned nearly half a bushel of charcoal in cooking it, and it had given three bowls full of dripping. Virginie interrupted her to boast of having seen it before it was cooked. Oh, you could have eaten it just as it was, she said. Its skin was so fine like the skin of a blonde. All the men laughed at this, smacking their lips. Lorilla and Madame Lorilla sniffed disdainfully, almost choking with rage to see such a goose on Clump Clump's table. Well, we can't eat it whole, the laundress observed. Who'll cut it up? No, no, not me. It, it's too big. I'm afraid of it. Coupeau offered his services. Mon Dieu, it was very simple. You caught hold of the limbs and pulled them off. The pieces were good all the same. But the others protested. They forcibly took possession of the large kitchen knife, which the zinc worker already held in his hand, saying that whenever he carved he made a regular graveyard of the platter. Finally, Madame Lerat suggested in a friendly tone, Listen, it should be Monsieur Poisson. Yes, Monsieur Poisson. But as the others did not appear to understand, she added in a more flattering manner still. Why, yes, of course, it should be Monsieur Poisson who's accustomed to the use of arms. And she passed the kitchen knife to the policeman. All round the table they laughed with pleasure and approval. Poisson bowed his head with military stiffness and moved the goose before him. When he thrust the knife into the goose, which cracked, Lorilleur was seized with an outburst of patriotism. "'Ah, if it was a Cossack!' he cried. "'Have you ever fought with Cossacks, Monsieur Poisson?' asked Madame Bosch. "'No, but I have with Bedouins,' replied the policeman, who was cutting off a wing. "'There are no more Cossacks.' A great silence ensued. Necks were stretched out as every eye followed the knife.' 
Poisson was preparing a surprise. Suddenly he gave a last cut. The hind quarter of the bird came off and stood up on end, rump in the air, making a bishop's mitre. Then admiration burst forth. None were so agreeable in company as retired soldiers. The policeman allowed several minutes for the company to admire the bishop's mitre, and then finished cutting the slices and arranging them on the platter. The carving of the goose was now complete. When the ladies complained that they were getting rather warm, Coupeau opened the door to the street, and the gaiety continued against the background of cabs rattling down the street and pedestrians bustling along the pavement. The goose was attacked furiously by the rested jaws. Bosch remarked that just having to wait and watch the goose being carved had been enough to make the veal and pork slide down to his ankles. Then ensued a famous tuck-in. That is to say, not one of the party recollected ever having before run the risk of such a stomach-ache. Gervaise, looking enormous, her elbows on the table, ate great pieces of breast without uttering a word, for fear of losing a mouthful, and merely felt slightly ashamed and annoyed at exhibiting herself thus, as gluttonous as a cat before Gouget. Gouget, however, was too busy stuffing himself to notice that she was all red with eating. Besides, in spite of her greediness, she remained so nice and good. She did not speak, but she troubled herself every minute to look after Père Bru, and place some dainty bits on his plate. It was even touching to see this glutton take a piece of wing, almost from her mouth, to give it to the old fellow, who did not appear to be very particular, and who swallowed everything with bowed head, almost besotted from having gobbled so much after he had forgotten the taste of bread. The Lorilleurs expended their rage on the roast goose. They ate enough to last them three days. They would have stowed away the dish, the table, the very shop, if they could have ruined Clump Clump by doing so. All the ladies had wanted a piece of the breast, traditionally the ladies' portion. Madame Lerat, Madame Boche, Madame Poutois were all picking bones, whilst Mother Coupeau, who adored the neck, was tearing off the flesh with her last two teeth. Virginie liked the skin when it was nicely browned, and the other guests gallantly passed their skin to her, so much so that Poisson looked at his wife severely and bade her stop, because she had had enough as it was. Once already she had been a fortnight in bed with her stomach swollen out, through having eaten too much roast goose. But Coupeau got angry, and helped Virginie to the upper part of her leg, saying that by Jove thunder, if she did not pick it, she wasn't a proper woman. Had roast goose ever done harm to anybody? On the contrary, it cured all complaints of the spleen. One could eat it without bread, like dessert. He could go on swallowing it all night without being the least bit inconvenienced, and just to show off, he stuffed a whole drumstick into his mouth. Meanwhile, Clemence had got to the end of the rump, and was sucking it with her lips, while she wriggled with laughter on her chair, because Bosch was whispering all sorts of smutty things to her. Ah, by Jove, yes, there was a dinner. When one's at it, one's at it, you know. And if one only has the chance now and then, one would be precious stupid not to stuff oneself up to one's ears. Really, one could see their sides puff out by degrees. They were cracking in their skins, the blessed gormandizers. With their mouths open, their chins besmeared with grease, they had such bloated red faces that one would have said they were bursting with prosperity. As for the wine, well, that was flowing as freely around the table as water flows in the Seine. 
It was like a brook overflowing after a rainstorm when the soil is parched. Coupeau raised the bottle high when pouring to see the red jet foam in the glass. Whenever he emptied a bottle, he would turn it upside down and shake it. One more dead soldier. In a corner of the laundry, the pile of dead soldiers grew larger and larger, a veritable cemetery of bottles onto which other debris from the table was tossed. Coupeau became indignant when Madame Petois asked for water. He took all the water pitchers from the table. Do respectable citizens ever drink water? Did she want to grow frogs in her stomach? Many glasses were emptied at one gulp. You could hear the liquid gurgling its way down the throats like rainwater in a drain-pipe after a storm. One might say it was raining wine. Mon Dieu, the juice of the grape was a remarkable invention. Surely the working man couldn't get along without his wine. Papa Noah must have planted his grapevine for the benefit of zinc workers, tailors, and blacksmiths. It brightened you up and refreshed you after a hard day's work. End of third part of chapter 7 Recording by David Lazarus